Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew once again, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. If you want to use the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 975. Um, 975 in the pew Bible in front of you, or Matthew chapter 14. This is a very popular story, uh, much like the last one we looked at. And so it's uh, sometimes uh, you've heard it preached in various ways that um, I I always want to kind of keep it fresh for you, help you see things that perhaps you haven't seen before. Um, Not that I want to come up with anything original uh, because the, the scriptures are stand on their own. So it's not my job to to make up things uh, or to use other people's sermons. It's uh, certainly not my job to do that. But but I do always want to perhaps help you notice things that, and and one of the things that uh, I've discovered really helps with that is just kind of following the theological themes that is kind of woven throughout these stories. And uh, that Matthew didn't just pick up random stories and put them together. He actually had a purpose for stringing them together the way he did, much like, a, uh, much like when you go to a movie and all those scenes just fit together to create one cohesive story. And, and that's what we have in the Gospels and, and really in the entire Bible. So we're looking this morning at uh, Matthew 14, verse 22. And uh, it's, again, uh, kind of a a rather uh, slightly lengthy passage, so uh, I would invite you just to remain seated as as I read the scriptures to you, and you can follow along in your copy of the Word or in the words in the the, uh, screen ahead of me. He says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and he cried, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshiped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. When I was in college, we, uh, our college group would would often, uh, one of our friends had a house and land there in Bismarck, uh, her family did. And, and we would often go out there to, uh, to uh, kind of do a little bonfire. Uh, several people played guitar. I didn't play guitar at the time. And it's, you know, debatable whether I even play guitar now. But, uh, but anyway, uh, 
we would get out there and we would sing some songs and we would pray together. We would share kind of thoughts from the scriptures. And, uh, and we had this one young lady named Doris who was part of that group. You know, sometimes we would sing songs we knew. Sometimes we would just kind of make up songs on the spot and we would sing them together. And it was just a great time. But I remember as we were praying together, Doris was speaking about a friend of hers that um, she had met in college. They were roommates and, and they had gotten to know each other very well. And as we were having this time of prayer and sharing, um, she started expressing that how she had shared her faith with her roommate numerous times and and yet her roommate just steadfastly refused. And, uh, and I remember Doris started, started crying and weeping as she was talking about this and talking about how desperate she was for her friend to know Christ and to come to salvation. And, and to my knowledge, um, she never did. But I remember uh, thinking that uh, that's a little extreme, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, aren't you taking this a little personally? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I even accused her of kind of, not out loud, but in my, in my mind, I was even accusing her of kind of putting on a show, you know, making it all about her, getting attention for, from us and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I remember thinking all of that and, and, I, and the Lord gave me kind of a check in my spirit that, um, I mean, not audibly, you know, I don't, the Lord doesn't speak to us audibly and and even impressions we have to be suspicious of if they're not uh, from the word. But I, I remember thinking to myself, when was the last time I wept over a friend who was lost? When was the last time I had so much passion for someone I love or say I love to know the gospel? And it was a real check in my spirit. And... Um, you know, one of the things that Steve Lawson says whenever he trains preachers is he says, you know, a lot of the problem with modern day preachers is that we've forgotten how to beg. We're too prideful to beg people to come to Christ. We've forgotten how to plead. We've forgotten how to mourn over them. We've forgotten how to, how to passionately pursue them for the gospel. When was the last time we as a church mourned over the lost in our community. When is the last time you wept over a friend that you know who is not in salvation, who is not in Christ? And so this morning, as we're looking at this, this uh, theme of the community of the disciple. We're, we're continuing this on and we're looking at this walking on the water, this episode of walking on the water that tells us that the church is not only a sustained community. We saw that last week. We're not only a countercultural community. We saw that the week before, but we are a rescued community. We are a saved community. There's a whole debate today, whether uh, over our Presbyterian friends and our Baptist friends and others, that, that they would say that the church is a mixed community, that, that it, like the nation of Israel, that it contains both lost and saved. I, I believe that the scripture teaches otherwise, that the new covenant is a, is a covenant that comes in whenever we are saved and that the church is made up of those who are in the new covenant, that we are a rescued, we are a redeemed community. Now, we don't fault our, our uh, Presbyterian friends for that. They have every right to be wrong. 
but uh, but we uh, but we hold to that in faith, and that's one of the one of the themes that we're seeing here is Matthew is developing what kind of community is the church. We see in this episode that the church is a rescued community. That to be part of the church, to have the sustaining power of Christ in your life, you must be rescued from your sin. You must be redeemed. You must be saved. So having basically overgone, uh, overwent kind of the context that we look at, I just want to dive right into it this morning. That this morning, if you want to be countercultural, if you want to be different, if you want to be sustained by Christ in your life, if you want to have those benefits of the new covenant, then you must call upon Christ to be rescued, much like Peter does in this story. We're going to see three reasons why we must call upon him, because we're rescued by Christ alone because we're rescued by faith alone and we're rescued for worship. Or if you wanna stick with the solas, you can say we're rescued for the glory of God alone. So we're gonna see that this morning. And so beginning in uh, verse 22, the first thing we see here is that we are rescued by Christ's work. We are rescued by Christ's work and we're gonna spend probably a little more time here than we do in the other verses because there's so, so much here that I want you to see. But beginning in verse 22, it says that immediately Jesus compelled, he forced or he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Now, you kind of get the sense here that he's having to do this, like there's some resistance on the disciples' part. And the reason why, and Matthew does not include it, but in John chapter six, we, we find that right after the feeding of the 5,000, the people, there was, there was incredible electricity, there was credible energy, and the 5,000 people and probably more that were there are getting very excited because Jesus had just performed this amazing miracle and they want to take Jesus and march on Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, and they wanna take Jesus and make him their king even by force if necessary. And so Jesus wants to get his disciples away from this electricity. And we get the impression that he kind of has to force them to do it. And while Matthew doesn't tell us that, that's not important to his theme. I think he is remembering what John also recalled in his gospel, that there was resistance. The, the disciples didn't want to leave. They were excited. And yet Jesus made them do it. And so... Matthew tells us, on the other hand, why did he make the disciples leave? Because in verse 23, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. By the way, you remember last week when he heard about Herod in verse 13, he went from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Same wording. It's, this is kind of what Jesus has been wanting to do from the beginning. He got onto the shore, he saw the crowd, he felt incredible compassion for them, and so he delayed his own gratification. He delayed what he wanted so that he could minister to the crowd, probably for a very long time during the day, perhaps all day long. And yet now he's finally getting up into the hills to be able to pray by himself. Matthew shows us this, but, but all the gospels show us that Jesus was a consistent 
man of prayer. He was a consistent, it was his consistent practice to get out by himself so that he could personally commune with the Father. Now, this is the only time that Matthew mentions Christ getting off alone other than in the garden that we're gonna see later on the night he's betrayed. But in the other gospels, we see this over and over and over again, that Christ goes off alone. He wanders off in the morning. He stays all alone. He prays all night long. He, he, he is a consistent man of prayer. And we see kind of an overview of this. The, the, uh, the author of Hebrews kind of gives us just kind of an overview of his, of his prayer life in chapter five, verse seven. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Christ was a man of prayer and he often prayed as much as he could. The disciples, on the other hand, in verse 24, they're on the boat and they're a long way away from the land. We know that uh, from John that this is probably about two or three miles into the Sea of Galilee. In other words, this is right about the middle of the Sea of Galilee at its widest point. It's about seven miles across and 11 miles long. And, uh, and this is right in the middle. And they ran into one of these squalors again. Now, now we've seen these before. You remember this from Matthew chapter eight, that because of the topography of Galilee, even to this day, these storms just whip up all of a sudden uh, because of the hills of the Golan Heights, the warm air from, the, uh, from Judea. It all comes together, it circles around, and it creates these wicked storms that are fast. Sometimes waves will get up to about eight to 10 feet high uh, during these storms. Whenever I was in Israel, we crossed Galilee and I really didn't want to because I don't like being on open water, especially, uh, especially when there's a storm. That's why I didn't join the Navy. I didn't want to be on a boat. So, uh, and so uh, I'm, a, I'm a wimp when it comes to that. And so, but these are professional fishermen. They work this sea. They work this lake all the time. And because of this squalor, what we're seeing is that the boat is actually being pushed out against them. It's pushing them out. They are, have no control over this boat whatsoever in these waves that are eight to 10 feet high. And it's literally swamping the boat. And they're out in the middle of the sea and cannot see any land because it is in the middle of the night. And so Christ... About the fourth watch of the night, this is between three o'clock in the morning and six o'clock in the morning. Obviously, there seems to be a little breaking of the darkness because they're able to see him coming. But Christ goes to them walking on the water. Now, what is the point of this? I want you to see that in this passage, we see the fullness of Christ's work. We see his person because in his prayer, we see his humanity. Christ is often praying to the Father. Christ prays. That is a function of his priestly role, that he, he prays for his people. He prays for uh, all the things he did. In fact, John, this is a little more developed in the Gospel of John. But like, for example, in John chapter 5, verse 30, here's what he says. He says, that I, this is Jesus speaking, can do nothing on my own. 
as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him that is the Father who sent me. And so Christ lived his life in complete and total obedience to his Father. He is earning the righteousness of his life. He is earning that righteousness that you and I can never earn for ourselves. One of the things I've told you before is that when you read the Gospels and you read the life of Christ, you are essentially reading your life story because this is the righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus lives, the righteousness that Jesus earns. That is the righteousness that has been placed on your account by God. This is the righteousness that is placed on you through faith. And so, in a sense, Jesus is, or not in a sense, he is living in absolute and total obedience to the Father, and he's showing us what it is to live as a person under God's rule. That's his humanity. But what about his deity? Well, we see this in a couple of ways. Number one, and you know, we're often so fascinated with his walking on the water, but there's actually like four or five, or, or three anyway, signs of his deity in the passage. There's several ways that he shows his deity. Number one, think about this. He's on the hill, he's praying. The disciples are 25 to 30 stadia out, which, which when you figure that out, that's about two and a half to three and a half miles, somewhere in the midst of that. How did Jesus know where they are? Can you see three miles away? <laughs> Can you see three miles away a little boat on the lake? No, you can't. I mean, granted, he is high up, and so he can kind of see down. He probably sees the storm. But then again, it's night. He maybe sees the lightning and stuff like that. But, but he knows exactly where to find them. He knows exactly where they are. And he, go, he walks directly to them. But then, of course, you also have the miracle of walking on the water. What's the significance of that? You ever think about that? I've heard a lot of preachers, a lot of preachers, tell us that Jesus walks on the water to show us how to walk above the storms of our life. Heard a lot of preachers preach things like that. And you know what? There's an air of truth to it. Okay. But is that the point? No, that's not the point. Think about this. Who has ever lived either before or since? Now you could, I guess you could put Peter in this category, but you're gonna see he didn't last very long. Who before or since has ever walked on water? Anyone? When Moses and the Israelites came out of Israel, God split the Red Sea. They came over on dry land. When Joseph, uh, Joseph when, when Joshua took Israel into the promised land, the, the Jordan River was split and they walked over in dry land. But no one in the Old Testament ever walked on water. But there are quite a few references. Like, for example, 
Job chapter nine, verse eight, who speaks of God, who says, who alone has stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who alone has done that? Only God. Psalm chapter 77, verse 19 says, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. The psalmist. In fact, do you remember creation? Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse two, the earth was void and without form. Darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God was doing what? His first interaction with his creation, what was he doing? He was moving across the surface of the waters. Beloved, Jesus is walking on the water not to tell us something about us, not to tell us something about our lives, but to tell us something about him, that only God can walk on water. Only God can walk on water. That's the point. That's the whole point of it is that Christ, in his feeding of the 5,000, he might have been mistaken as a Moses-type prophet or an Elijah-type prophet. And so he gets his disciples on the sea to show them that he is more than a prophet. He is God incarnate. And he does what only God can do. Only God can walk on water. You and I cannot do that. I have tried I don't do very well with those inflatable rafts. When I try to walk on them, I go straight to the bottom. I can't even do that. I can barely balance on wet rocks. Only God can walk on water and Jesus walks on water to show that he is God. And the disciples' reaction, they look out at this and they say that it's a ghost. They're terrified. You know, it's funny. Some people will look at this and they'll say, you know, that's the reason why we know that this story is not true because the Israel, Judah, had no real official belief in ghosts. You know what? Calvary, doesn't, Calvary Baptist Church doesn't have an official belief in ghosts either, but I guarantee you, being be in this building about three o'clock in the morning, I guarantee you, you're gonna hear some noises that'll make you wonder, okay? <laughs> so, you know, you don't, you don't believe in ghosts, but every now and then you hear a little creak and you're like, huh, or, or go down in the basement sometime. You'll believe in ghosts really quick, all right? <laughs> so, yeah, we don't believe in ghosts, but every now and then something happens that just makes you wonder just a little bit. And I guarantee you, what is the first thing you would think of if you're on a boat in the middle of the storm, you think you're about to die, and here comes a dude walking toward you, walking on the water. What's the first thing you're gonna think? It's the grim reaper, and he's coming for me, okay? That's the first thing you're gonna think. I don't believe in the Grim Reaper either, but I would in this case. Give the disciples a break. <laughs> so of course they think it's a ghost. And Jesus says, take heart. Our translations say that he says, it is I. Actually, the better translation would be, take heart, I am. Don't be afraid. I am is with you. That's another way we see his deity. It's another way. You know, many things we can emphasize here, but Matthew seems to be emphasizing fear. 
of the disciples. Matthew seems to be emphasizing that Christ is the answer to our fear. Maybe you are nervous about something that's going on in your life and you're afraid to deal with it. Maybe you have news coming from the doctor that you're afraid to go and find out. No news is good news. Ignorance is bliss. That's your philosophy. Maybe you're one of our young ones this morning and you're going to school and you're afraid of going to school because you know how much they will make fun of you. You know how much they will mistreat you. You know you have that teacher that seems to be picking on you. Some of you have bosses that you just seem to be their little pet project. And you're, you're living a life of fear. And the whole point of Matthew's theme here is that you don't have to be afraid. Because Christ still rescues. Christ still saves. Christ is still in the saving business. A lot of people wonder what Christ was praying for here. I, I don't know that. We're not told. But one thing I can prove is this. Christ is still praying for you. He's still praying for you. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25 says that consequently Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know what Christ is doing for you right now? He is praying for you. And do you think the father answers his prayers? Yes. I love this quote from Robert Murray McShane. He's the, one of the great Scottish presbyters of the 19th century. He says that if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the, difference, yet the distance makes no difference. Christ is praying for me. Beloved, do you know that Christ is praying for you? Do you know that he is continually taking your fears, your concerns, your weaknesses, your strengths? He is taking you to the throne of grace before his father, just as he prayed to God, his father, that Satan, though he wanted to sift Peter like wheat, that Jesus has prayed for him and his prayers protected him and his prayers are protecting you. You are invincible until God is done and ready to bring you home. There is nothing that mere men can do to you that is not part of the plan of your gracious Father to make you more like Christ. And so we are rescued by Christ's work for us. And then very quickly, I told you I'd spend more time there because there's just so much. So very quickly in the rest of the text, we are rescued by faith. 
Matthew includes something here that the other gospel writers don't include. In fact, um, we're not really sure why, but this kind of tells me that this is very important to Matthew's message when, when he kind of goes and tells us a different occurrence than the others do. Peter, in verse 28, says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt Peter's reaction, again, seems to be the, the emphasis that Matthew is giving here. And, and he tells Jesus, if it is you, then command me to get out on the boat. I will come to you. And Jesus says, come. Understand, the storm has not changed at this point. The storm has not changed. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he takes that first step and he, and he feels what shouldn't be, but what is solid footing underneath him. And so he lets go of the boat and he begins walking to Jesus as best as he can. And at first he does pretty good. And yet, as he began to look, keep in mind, the waves are eight to 10 feet tall. We've seen the burials in Israel and we know on average, these guys are about five foot six, five foot five, something like that. And so these waves are literally twice as big as he is, more than likely, and he begins to be afraid and he begins to fall in the water. And the only thing he can do is what any drowning man, the only thing they can do is reach out their arms, call out as loud as they can for rescue. Lord, save me. By the way, the, the word save there is the word that we get salvation from. It is the word for saving. And there's two aspects of this that, that I think is important for us. Number one is that, is that Jesus' command, he, he, does, he, he does allow Peter, he does tell him, even though this is Peter's idea, Jesus says, come on. He commands Jesus to come. This is more than an invitation. This is an imperative. He commands him to come. And you say, well, wait a minute. Isn't this kind of a ridiculous command? Well, do you remember when he fed the 5,000? He told the disciples, you feed them. You give them something to eat. That was a ridiculous command too, right? And yet, because Jesus commanded it, that with that command came the supernatural power for them to follow it. And so in the same way, Peter's learning a little bit here and he knows that if Jesus commands him to do it, then he's going to be able to do it. And so he takes a step out of the boat and he begins to walk on the water to Christ. So he's learning a little bit here. Not, not quite there. He's learning a little bit. So, so we see Jesus's command, but we also see the lack of Peter's faith. Peter failed. Even though it was his idea, he failed. He impulsively gets out, walks, depending on his own ability to follow the command. And in the first sign of trouble, and I can just imagine this, uh, you can almost imagine like Wile E. Coyote where, you know, you're, you're walking on the air and you suddenly realize you're not walking on anything. And all of a sudden, like right then, you know you're in trouble and gravity is about to take its toll, right? 
And in the same way, Peter sees these waves coming toward him that is literally twice the size that he is more than likely. And I think all of a sudden he realizes where he is and I'm not supposed to be able to do this. And he falls in the water almost immediately. By the way, Peter's a professional fisherman. He knows how to swim. But I don't know if you've ever tried to swim in the wave pools at, uh, at uh, like Wild River Country or what's that place we go to and... Whitewater, I don't know if you've ever tried to swim in those wave pools, but it gets pretty tiring very quickly. And he does the only thing that a drowning man can do. He calls out for rescue. I don't know if you've noticed this, but we've pointed this out many times that Jesus is often in the business of commanding us to do the very things that we cannot do. Have you ever noticed that? To the blind man, what does he say? Open your eyes and see. To the lame man, what does he say? Get up, take up your bed and walk. To the deaf man, what does he say? Hear, open your ears and hear. Jesus is often in the business of commanding us to do the very things that we cannot do. What's the point of this? Well, let's look at a couple of passages. Romans chapter three, verse 12, verses really 10 through 11. He says that Paul says that it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one, no one understands, and watch this, no one seeks for God. No one is seeking after God. First Corinthians chapter two, verse 14. Look what he says here. The natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. And watch this. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What's the point of this? Is that Peter is not rescued by his ability to follow Jesus's command. Jesus is, res excuse me, Peter is rescued by calling out in desperation in his drowning state. He calls out in desperation to Christ and that is what rescues him. And beloved, today in the same way, you are not saved by your ability to keep the law. You are not saved by your ability to follow Jesus's commands. You are not saved by your ability to keep the letter of the law and strive to meet the minimum. You are saved by one way and one way only in the desperation of a person who is drowning. When you realize you are drowning in your sin, you are dying, you are, you are lost, you are dying, you are facing accountability for your sin, you're facing the judgment of God, and all you can do with the desperation of a drowning man is call out to Christ and say, Lord, save me. And you find that he immediately reaches out and he lifts you up by grace alone, through faith alone. That's how we are a rescued community. We are saved by faith alone, calling out to his mercy. This is what we must do. And beloved, if you are here this morning and you have not done this, cry out to Christ in all understanding that there is nothing you can do to affect your own salvation. There is nothing you can do to affect your own rescue. You are drowning. You are lost in a sea 
of storms and waves and you are drowning in your sin. You are facing accountability. The judgment for sin is death and judgment. And all we can do is call out for his grace through the life and death of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who died for our sins so that we can have forgiveness, who raised from the dead on the third day so that we could have new life in him and is now ascended to the right hand of God so that we can surrender to him as our new king, giving up our sin, giving up our self-rule and submitting to Christ alone as our Lord and Savior. If you would be rescued this morning, you must do what the only thing that a drowning man can do. You must call out for rescue. And you will find that the grace of God will immediately save you from your sin. He will rescue you from the penalty. He will deliver you from the power of sin and the hold that it has over your life. He stands ready to forgive you. He stands ready to take you as his own. If you will turn to him. Why is it so important for the church to recognize that we are a rescued community? Because we're not rescued, we're not just rescued by faith in Christ's work, but it's the purpose we're rescued for. We're rescued for worship. We're rescued to the glory of God alone. In verse 32, and when they got back into the boat, just stop there for a moment. Let's use a little sanctified logic and imagination here. Do you think the disciples went out to get them? No. So what had to happen? They had to walk back to the boat. As Peter has called out for rescue and Jesus has grabbed him, now they're able to walk together back to the boat. That's the, what are we on? Fourth, fifth divine action of Christ. Then here's the next one. As soon as they get in the boat, what happens? The wind ceases. It's done. Disciples have seen this before. You remember in Matthew chapter eight, they were, on, they were in another one of these squalors and Jesus was asleep in the boat and they said, Lord, don't you care that we're about to die? And Jesus gets up, he says, hey, wind, shut up. And it does. And there's a calm over the sea and the disciples saw that and they're like, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, you know, sometimes it takes more than once to get the clue I think they got the clue this time. I don't think they're quite there yet, but they're getting the clue. They're starting to clue in who this is. He says, when they got into the boat, those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Truly, Christ, 
is the son of God. And this is where Matthew is taking us two times in this section on the church. There's gonna be a great confession. There is here where the disciples in the boat say, truly you are the son of God. And then in Matthew 16, where Christ asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Two times we see this confession as Matthew is instructing us in the life of the church. But Matthew, his whole theme, this is where he is taking us, that from the very beginning, he quotes Isaiah, that his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then in Matthew 20, 28, at the very end, Jesus giving the great commission, he says, lo, I am with you. His whole point is that Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The height of worship is that we confess the truths that he reveals to us. We take them in. We cherish them. We love them and we follow them. That's the height of worship. This is how scripture works. As we open the scriptures, as you hear it preached, as you hear it read, as you hear it sung, as you read it on your own, this is how scripture works. This is what we call the doctrine of illumination that he turns on the light bulb. He, he opens our eyes to see great and wonderful things. And when we hear the truth, we, we, the spirit moves us to say, this is true. I must believe it. This is beautiful. I must love it. This is compelling. I must follow it. You want a picture of true worship? There it is. When we look at the truths of God, and they lead us back to the person of God. And we say, this is true. I must believe it. This is beautiful. I must love it. This is compelling. I must follow it. Beloved, that's what worship looks like. That is biblical worship. That is true worship. Don't let us become so accustomed to hearing the truth that it loses its wonder in our hearts. Don't become so accustomed to hearing the gospel that the word grace is no longer preceded by the word amazing. Don't let it lose its thrill. Have you lost that? Have you been losing that? Do you think that you have a boring testimony? Do you think that worship it for you is merely a rote routine for you? Have you lost your thrill for Christ? Have you lost your thrill for the gospel? Have you forgotten that you have been rescued, that we are a rescued people? Because when you know that, I don't think you can help but to worship. I don't think you can help but to see Christ and love him. Let's remember this morning, let's renew our minds afresh again by putting amazing back in front of grace by letting the thrill encapsulate us again. Don't ever forget that you are a rescued person. And if you're here this morning and you know in your heart of hearts that Christ has not rescued yet, now is your time to respond. We are a rescued people. We're rescued by Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. That is why we exist. 
So real quick, how can we stir ourselves up? Just very quickly, number one, how can we stir our hearts for worship again? Confess your lack of worship. Jesus promises that when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive you. Number two, preach the gospel to yourself daily, and especially when you mess up again, especially when you sin again, especially when you have that habit again, especially when that classmate has treated you wrongly again, especially when that boss has mistreated you again. Remember that this Remind yourself of the gospel. This is what Christ has died for. Don't make it just an abstract thing. Apply it to yourself. Apply it to the things in your life. Number three, reflect and meditate on the scriptures daily. Don't just read as a check mark to mark off, but reflect on what you read, meditate on them Number four, and this is something we've been doing on Wednesday night in our prayer group, allow your scripture meditations to fuel prayer. Allow your scripture meditations to fuel your prayer life. And as you do, you will, you will grow a new thrill. You'll grow a new passion for the gospel, for the Lord. And you will want other people to hear about it too. Oh, that we would weep for the lost in our community. Oh, that we would weep for the lost who may be in this room today. To those who are still drowning, trying to hold on to an inflatable raft that is full of holes and they are sinking to the bottom and they don't even know that they're in trouble. Oh, that we would weep for them and that we would cry to them and beg them, take the hand of Christ so that you can walk on the water of righteousness. Oh, that you would come. Don't wait. Don't resist. Don't be proud. Don't say it's all just fake. That, that tug that you're feeling in your heart right now is the power of the Spirit taking the word and trying to convince you of it. Oh, would you please let him in? Let him change you and find forgiveness for your sins. Our Father, we thank you for your rescue. We thank you that you are a God who has not left us to ourselves, that you are a God who has brought us from the pit of despair, from the drowning seas of sin, hell, and death. Lord, you have given us new life to walk in you. And I pray this morning that there are those here who are not walking who they have lost the thrill of your gospel in their hearts. I pray this morning you would remind us again, remind us afresh that this is amazing, just as amazing, just as miraculous as a man walking on water is the salvation of our souls. Lord, if there's one here who does not know that yet, I pray that you would draw them. 
for yourself. If that's you here this morning, I'll be up here. We typically sing about a verse or two. And if you're here, you wanna talk. You can come up here and you can talk to me. You can pray. If you've lost that thrill for the gospel and you say, Randy, pray for me because I want it back. I wanna stir up my heart again for Christ. If you're here, you've received the word, but you want to confess it in baptism. Or maybe you want to get in the boat with another, with a whole group of like-minded believers who are committed to your discipleship and growth. Maybe you wanna come and say, I wanna join the church. Whatever your need is, I invite you to come forward. Let's stand together. Let's sing this song together.